This passage, Genesis 32, is one of the five or six stories and sections that I was excited to teach when we started doing Genesis. Obviously, you think, I want to do Genesis chapter 1 and 2, creation, the fall. I want to talk about the Nephilim, right? I want to talk about Abraham. But this one right here, Genesis 32, I love this story because it is such an amazing picture to me of what God does in his people. And we've been following Jacob's story from the beginning. And this is not where it ends, but this is certainly the climax of Jacob's story. He was driven from his home, you'll remember, when he sinned against his father and his brother. He lied, he deceived, he swindled and cheated his brother out of his birthright and his father out of the blessing that he wanted to give to his other son Esau. When he was found out, he was told by his brother Esau, that's fine, but as soon as dad dies, I'm going to kill you and then I'll get all of it. And so Jacob fled. He went to Padan Aram to be in Laban's house where he's been for the last several weeks for us. And along the way, he met God at Bethel. And that was a remarkable thing that God said he was going to be with him. And Jacob said, I'll serve you. And we've seen that we, we looked at Laban as a, as a mirror image of Jacob. That Jacob's name, Yaakov, means heel catcher, as in deceiver or cheat or liar. And he meets up with Laban, who is the consummate cheat, liar, schemer. And so, in a way, obviously it's a true story, but as the story plays out, it's, it's Jacob confronting that within himself and seeing, if I don't change, I'm going to end up like this guy. And he wrestled back and forth with Laban, finally got away, made the determination, we're not staying here. We talked about the importance of crucifying the flesh, abandoning your sin, not trying to play games with it. So this has all been good. But now the moment of truth has come. Jacob is going to face the final confrontation with God and with himself. This is when he will leave behind the name Jacob. And we're going to see the name Israel for the first time in our Bibles. And the Lord desires to change each of us in a similar way. And I love this story because you can use it as an example for big changes. Most notably, when you want to become saved, you meet God, God shows you your sin, but he calls you to abandon it and forgives you and calls you by a new name, but also in little ways too. You you can live this out in little micro versions every day when you do something that in a way throws you out into the wilderness where you're confronted with something about yourself, your temper, your attitude, your lies, shall we say, and you say, you know what, I'm going to leave that behind. I'm not going to be that guy anymore. It's the process of sanctification. And God wants to take who we are, according to this story, And he wants to redeem us. You know what redeem means? To redeem something means to buy it back. It's not that God wants to take who you are, run it through a shredder, and say, now I'm going to make something brand new out of you. In a way, that is the way it is, but it's not entirely true. That's how the world loves to portray it. Religion just makes cookie cutter. (laughs) The people all look the same. They're like 1984, just marching down the hall. And then everybody's the same. There's no room for being different. Usually what they mean by that is there's no room for sin. And it's an accusation that we don't want to give too much credence. But there is some truth to the fact that we can start to view our Christian life as I've got to be just like everybody else. But it's different than that. The Lord wants to take who you are and all of the worst parts that are aimed in the wrong direction. He wants to take those and repurpose them for his kingdom and make them better. We're going to see that he does this with Jacob. He's going to take all of the 
character flaws of Jacob and redeem them for his glory as he renames him. You know, there are, speaking very broadly, two kinds of of churches, and I'm speaking of godly, Bible-believing, evangelical churches here. You've got some that want to key very, very heavy on these personal aspects. You know, that when we're preaching, it's going to hit your life. It's going to be very applicable, very practical. It's all about the changes that you can make, and we talk about family, and we talk about money, and all those things that the Bible addresses. But leaving out some of the foundational doctrinal matters. They're all there, they're all believed, but they're not discussed as much. Then on the other hand, and this is where most Calvary chapels tend to fall, we key in heavy on the doctrine, and we teach grace, and we teach the cross, and we teach sanctification, and glorification, and trinity, and canon, and all those wonderful things, but some of those application matters, some of those homely uh, personal issues get left by the wayside. They're kind of talked about, yeah, 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 but the most important thing is this. But the way the Bible presents it to us is it brings those two things into harmony. Look at the way Jesus taught. Jesus was such a practical teacher, wasn't he? Somebody strikes you on the right cheek, let him hit the other one too. That's real down-to-earth practical. The book of James, the book of Proverbs, so practical. Then you got books like Romans, Ephesians, that are doctrinal, Isaiah, right, that are teaching us deep, mysterious things of God. But all of it is to work together. The doctrine, as it says in Titus chapter 2, the doctrine motivates us and sends us out to live righteously and to live differently. And this is a great example, I think, in this story of tying those two things together, of such a wonderful picture of the transformation that God works in us through Christ. But there's also such an immediate practical application of what God wants to do through us. I'm really excited and I've spent more time talking about how excited I am than actually talking about it. So let's go ahead and start chapter 32. And we're going to do big sections tonight. Chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. Last thing we saw, we finally got rid of Laban. Remember, they they made a pillar and they said, you stay on this side and I'll stay on this side and that'll be our covenant. Well, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. Underline that phrase. That's a phrase I had forgotten about. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. A little humility there, huh? I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Okay, so we've left Laban behind. Remember that whole story? They snuck away. It's the only way they were going to get out of there. Laban chased them through the mountain region to Gilead, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And they had their confrontation, and now they've finally gotten away. And it says that as they went on their way, the angels of God met him. And he says, this is God's camp. I don't think camping like you've got a little triangle tent and you know you're roasting marshmallows over the fire this is a war camp there are soldiers we talk about angels as heavenly hosts a host is an army you hear that in old movies like lord of the rings or things i'll talk about the host that is coming to fight against us this is how the bible describes angels so there is an army that has come with jacob which is why he names this place mahanaim which means two camps anytime you see that ending i am In Hebrew, it's what's called a dual 
ending. So you'll maybe hear about Mayim is the waters. You know, you wonder why it ever calls it the waters. It's a dual ending in Hebrew. And heavens, we talk about heaven, but this talks about the heavens. It's Shamayim. It's that same dual ending. More than one, but not, not specific plural. Just a little interesting note there. Two camps. As Jacob's got his camp, and there's God's angels. And it's so remarkable because uh, other than the angel we're going to meet later, we don't hear about these guys again. It's just amazing to me that the angelic and the, the physical are always working next to each other, side by side, and we often don't even realize it. Maybe that'd be a good, interesting point to come back to, but that's not the point of our story tonight. The idea is that God is with him to protect him, yeah? And this is important because he's getting in touch with Esau. Jacob knows. He's like, there's no point trying to sneak back into the promised land. We've got to confront this thing head on. Esau, at this point, is in Seir. Seir is related to the Hebrew word for hairy, and Edom is the country which is related to the Hebrew word for red. And you remember when Esau was born and all growing up, he was a hairy man, and he was ruddy. He was red-skinned, it said. So he named uh, his countries and his cities after himself. So I don't know what you call that, his nicknames anyway, but I've seen folks that tattoo their name on the back of their neck, so nothing that just changed, I guess. He's in his own land now. He's not living with... Isaac and Rebekah any longer. He's down in the south in the, the rocky regions where the, the desert is very red. And that's where he's living now. He, he's become a chieftain in his own right. And Jacob is coming home after 20 years. And he's still worried about the vengeance of Esau. 20 years. And he's still worried about this. And he's got to come back. He can't go back to Laban now. He's got to go home to his promised land. God's called him to go. Now he's got to face up to the very thing that caused him to run away 20 years ago. And as far as he knows, the situation is worse. Because no longer is Esau just the rowdy guy that has some friends that could beat him up. Now he's a war chief living in the hard scrabble land of Edom. And he's got to come back. Now Jacob is, is rich and powerful himself, but it's a different kind of wealth and power, isn't it? He's no warlord. He's no fighter. He never was. But he's very shrewd with money and with fields and flocks and things like that. But he knows he doesn't stand a chance. You know, the easy part of changing is the epiphany. The moment of decision. The moment of, I've got to change. I can't be like this anymore. Those are easy. And I've talked about that. Where sometimes we get addicted to the epiphany. And we come to church hoping to have another epiphany of realizing what's wrong and have an emotional moment. Yeah, you're right. I've got to get out of there. I can't keep doing that. And we've talked about how it's not enough to know you've got to change. You've got to change. But the thing is, when the Lord brings a change about in your life, he will bring you right back to the point that drove you there in the first place. And you go, Lord, why? Because <laughs> God knows that this is the sticking point. This is what we might call today a stronghold in your life. There's still a point of fear. There's still an unresolved issue. And, you know, even in, in literature, this is reflected. That the hero always has to come home, right? The, the Frodo and Sam go out and destroy the ring, but they've got to come home. They've got to come back. And if you read the books, there's a whole other section of they've got to bring about the change in their home that they went and performed around the world. You see this even in, in Disney movies like The Lion King or The Incredibles. The hero's got to come home. It's great to win the battle, but you've got to bring it back. And this is the same attitude that 
We know instinctively because we know from our long study of humanity what God revealed to us a long time ago. That you can't say, well, everything's changed and I'm just going to take all this stuff and bury it and shove it under the bed and never deal with it again. As long as you do that, it has power over you. And so God brings us back. We've always got to go back. We'll talk about this more next week, but you might have had a profound change. You've got to bring it back to your family. You've got to go back to the situation that sent you into the metaphorical, spiritual wilderness in the first place. This is the hard part. Moses was sent out into the wilderness for 40 years. It was great. He met with God at the burning bush. Great. But then God says, you've got to go back. And that's what Moses did not want to do. Joseph was doing just fine in Potiphar's house and then Pharaoh's house. Then his brothers show up and all of a sudden it's thrown into turmoil again. It's the same thing. This is the hard part. But you've got to do it. Many people have had what they call spiritual experiences. They go to a conference or something and they get all hyped up about Jesus. Then they come back and they're walking in the door whistling and stepping around. I'm, Jesus is going to be Lord in this house. And the first thing his wife says to him is, oh, good, you're finally back. Things have been crazy. You didn't do that thing that I asked you to do. And I've been dealing with it all week. And, well, babe, don't, don't you know everything's okay now? It's all gravy, baby, because Jesus is fine. That, that's fine. But we've got to deal with this right now. And then you get all grumpy. Well, doesn't she know I've had a profound spiritual experience and she doesn't respect that and she's making it hard for me to follow Jesus. When in reality, like, no, this is when you get to start following Jesus. You've got to bring it home. And there are people that in very extreme cases, when they get into usually some kind of weird theology thing I found, you get into some weird doctrinal thing, nobody around you likes it, they're all trying to call you to repentance, and eventually you get so twisted up in your mind, you say, you know, my husband is so unrighteous because he doesn't get this doctrine or he doesn't go to church like I do, God would probably be fine with me leaving them because it's just too hard, it's too difficult. Or my wife is just, a, she is a hindrance to my spiritual walk, I've got to leave. So arrogant, isn't it? And it's, you know what it is? It's cowardly. It's unwilling to step up and face Esau and deal with it. But you've got to do it. Jacob is afraid, but he's doing what he's got to do. And it's not going to start out the way he thought it would. This is his final crucible. Let's pick up verse 6 now. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. That's not a welcoming committee. That's a posse. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps. Mahanaim, there it is again. Thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Jacob is very shrewd, right? Very smart. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps, Mahanaim. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Paraphrase, all right, God, you got me into this mess. You're going to have to get me out of it. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 
male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And what are those ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. <laughs> so Esau receives the message and comes to him with 400 men. Battle formation. And Jacob begins to panic. You know what? We're going to do the right thing. We're going to confront Esau. We're going to have this out once and for all. He's on his way, and he's got an army with him. Oh, no. So he divides his forces. Like, oh, we'll split us in half. And I'm going to send Esau a bunch of gifts. This is more than 500 animals that he sent to Esau. Wealth back then, of course, was not measured so much in gold and silver, but in livestock. So this is very expensive. And he's trying to calm Esau down. And he just keeps on getting richer and richer the closer he gets to Jacob. Like, hey, please don't kill me, Esau. There's a lot more where this came from. And he prays. It's great that he prays, but you can hear the panic here. He's almost asking, God, why would you do this to me? Yeah, I, I know I did wrong, but you told me to go back in that dream that you sent me, and you said that you'd bless me, and, and now Esau's on his way to kill me. This prayer reminds me of the children of Israel wondering why they left Egypt in the first place. Why did we leave? We had food every day. We had leeks and onions and and we never had to wonder where the food was going to come from. And it's almost foolish because you're like, you were slaves in Egypt. And in this case, it's like, Jacob, you were basically a slave to Laban. Why did you want to stay there? When we've met with God, we're making a change. We go back to our lives. It is very often the case that the people around us have not changed and do not care what you have learned. Have you found that to be true? You have a big moment. I'm going to make a change, and you sit people down, and you tell them this is what's going to be different. And in the movies, that's always the end of the movie, and everybody cries and smiles, and, you know, Amazing Grace plays on the, on the air. But, okay. Yeah, all right, fine. Do whatever you're going to do. Anyway, look, I'm late for that thing. i got to go. And like, no, wait, I'm trying to tell you something. People don't care. In Acts chapter 9, verse 26, when Paul was saved on the road to Damascus and spent some time in Arabia learning from the Lord, and in verse 26, when Paul came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Paul wants to join the church in Jerusalem. I don't know how this exactly went down, but nobody believed he was saved. After that radical testimony, after the anointing from Ananias, after the revelations he'd received in the wilderness, the church didn't believe him. And this led to him eventually being sent to Tarsus, where he lived for like 14 years. And this is kind of how we are, isn't it? When somebody messes up and they say that they've repented and changed, we, we want to believe them and we hope they learn, but we usually something like, yeah, but you're not going to make that mistake around me again. When, when the spouse cheats, 
or the employee lies or your child rebels or the politician does something corrupt. And these are apologies that we like we accept, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, but you can keep your distance from me. In a way, we've earned it, haven't we, when we do things like that? When we've been terrible, when we've been like Jacob, why doesn't he want me? It's like, because remember, you ripped him out of everything that he should have gotten from his own father. Now he's got to be a warlord in the desert to get everything he's got. And Jacob, in this moment, reverts back to his old ways, scheming and planning and trying to fix it himself. Now he's praying, which is good, right? He's not the same man he was, but you know, when the crisis moment comes, you fall back on, on what you know and what's comfortable. You've got to know that when God is bringing change to your life, whether that's your initial salvation, whether that's just getting over some bad habit in your life, this is going to happen. People around you are not going to understand. We've got to know this, especially as believers. The world's not going to get us. And we, we waste a lot of time stressing about why the world doesn't love us and accept us. It's not going to happen. It's all part of the process. It's all part of the change. Accepting that final reproach is part of it. And Jacob has to this point, he's been reduced in Laban's presence. He's been pressured, but this is the final test. This is the one thing he does not want to do. And it is the only thing that will change him forever. This is what Jesus did when he met people, wasn't it? He would find the one thing that they were not willing to do and make that the price of admission. In a way, it's, it's still the same. What is the one thing that you absolutely are terrified to do or would not change for anybody? That's what Jesus demands of you to become a believer. Jesus was tough with people. He'd send them away. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Let the dead bury their own dead. Lord, let me first go say goodbye to my family. Listen, I don't need anybody following me. He's going to keep looking back and worrying about what's going on at home. We go, Jesus, that's so harsh. But this is the real deal, baby. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. Come and follow me. And they left their nets. They left everything to go follow him. They're our example. It's the same thing with you and with me. What is the one thing that you would be absolutely terrified to do? The conversation you'd be terrified to have. The action you'd be terrified to take. The move that you'd have to make. That's what the Lord requires of you. And in many, many cases, we say, God, change me. Lord, I want to get over my scheming ways. And God says, fine, go talk to Esau. Lord, I don't want to do that. Isn't there another way? And the answer is no, there's not. You ever hit the wall in your spiritual life? Things are going great, 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 and then pow, you feel like you, it all just fell apart? Probably because you were brought to the confrontation with Esau and you ran away. But just like Jesus had to go to the cross to secure our salvation, you and I have to be willing to die to ourselves to receive that same transformation. And here's Jacob, and he doesn't want to do it. So let's see how he handles it. Verses 22 through 32. I'll read the whole thing, and then we're going to spend most of our time here. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children. That would be 11 sons. There's also Dina, who is his daughter. And crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. 
Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is what God desires to do for each of us. Let's break this down. Jacob's final strategy is to send the family across the ford of the Jabbok. And now he is alone. Everybody else is in the promised land except him. He's not been alone like this since he was at Bethel the last time when he saw the gateway to heaven. His family is gone, his wives, his children, all of his servants, all of his flocks and herds and wealth. It's just Jacob now. And now he has to face not only the Lord, he has to face himself. There is officially nowhere else to run. There are no more moves to make. There are no more schemes to employ. He must confront Esau. This is the moment. Every one of us gets to this moment. We've been sent into the wilderness. We've done something that has thrown our lives into upheaval. And then we meet God. And we determine that we're going to change. And then we do. We make our every best effort to change. But then the pressure comes. And it's make or break time. Jacob has come too far to go back. He either submits to God now or he dies. Because Esau's already on his way. They know where he is. He has been brought out past the point of no return. He's hanging on the edge of the limb and it's being sawed off. It is either do or die. And every one of us has been to moments like this where you can't go back. You must go forward and nothing is there to help you. It's just you and God. You're exposed. That's what they call when you're climbing up the mountain and there's nothing beneath you to catch your fall. You're exposed. When the only option left is, I, I have to tell the truth now. I'm cornered. I have to confront that abuser. There's nothing else I can do. I have to move the family. God has told me where he wants us to go and we have to go. Anything else would be disobedience. This is hard. Because now Jacob... Has, has nothing to distract him from who he is anymore. The liar, the schemer. The Lord's going to ask him his name. He knows that that life is not going to work for him anymore. But now is his last chance to turn back, he might say. He can choose to flee, but he's already too far out. Once you've begun the journey with the Lord, you, you can't just go back. Peter and the other disciples went back fishing after Jesus had risen. and didn't catch anything. Because it was too late. You can't go back. You can't go back to the life you had. Christians who get saved and then go back to the world are always miserable. And they either become depressed or they become self-righteous and angry. No more lies. It's just him. This, this is almost a, a picture of Gethsemane here. Where Jesus, it was just him and the Lord. And there was, there was nothing left between going to the cross and him. And he prays, Lord, if there is any other way, please, let's do it that way. And he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. But notably, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. That's the place God is trying to bring Jacob to right now. 
That's where redemption happens. And this is the tough part. These are the moments when you're awake, when you should be sleeping, when you're driving in the car and you can't focus on anything else, when you're sitting in church and everybody else is listening to the songs and praying and you've got some inner thing going on, when you're in a conversation and your heart is pounding because you know what needs to be said, that's this moment right here. Gethsemane, the brook Jabbok, standing on the edge of the promised land, knowing that to go in is not only to be changed and transformed, the positive side, but to face the thing you fear the most. Because Esau's waiting on the other side. Every mistake you've made, the thing that caused all this trouble in the first place, must be confronted. And Jacob is wrestling with the decision. In fact, he's actually wrestling with, it says, a man. But we know that this is the angel of the Lord. Hosea 12 makes that clear if this passage didn't make it clear enough for you. This is God himself. He's wrestling with God. And based on how this goes, you can't think of this. Every kid's show I ever saw, always like they were, you know, spinning in circles with their arms. Like they're MMA, mixed martial arts wrestling here. God is trying to get Jacob to do what he needs to do. Maybe one of those angels, the angel of the Lord, the commander of the army that Joshua would see later, who is Christ himself, came over and said, Jacob, it's time to go. I can't. You've got to go. I'm not going. Yes, you are. No, I'm not coming. And then the wrestling match begins. You're going over. No, I can't. I'm not doing it. Picture this. God is trying to wrestle Jacob into the man he needs to be. Says, Jacob, it's time to leave behind the lies and the schemes and the deception and the heel catching. It's time to become, to become a straightforward man, to be a courageous man, to have love and humility. But Jacob is resisting that. Here's a little picture to comfort you later. When you say, is God ever working on me? Is he ever? Yeah, he is. He's wrestling with you. God's willing to get down into the octagon with you to turn you into the man or woman he needs you to be. Really, Jacob's been wrestling with God for 20 years. This is just a picture of what he's been doing this whole time. And he sees that Jacob will not submit. He will not tap out. <laughs> he will not say, I'm done. He won't throw in the towel. He won't say, yes, Lord. He won't say, not my will, but yours be done. And it says he touched his hip and his hip came out of the socket, out of joint. Maybe you've seen the, those skeletons, those pictures of what the, the hip looks like. You've got the ball and you've got the socket and the ball came out of the socket. So when it says he touched his hip, this is more like elbow dropping his hip until it pops out. This would have been painful. This would have been immobilizing. You've got to picture Jacob screaming and writhing on the ground at this point. He can't fight anymore. His hip is out. And we're going to read it. It's going to stay out. It's never getting better. So it's not like sometimes your shoulder, you kind of pop it back in. No, no, no. He is injured. He is crippled. <laughs> the fight is over. Do you see the metaphor here? I hope you can. Jacob is broken. God has maneuvered him to this place that I'm going to make of you the man that I need you to be. And Jacob said, yes, Lord. And then God brought him to the moment and Jacob started digging in his heels and said, no. And God broke him. You're not running anymore. You can't run anymore. That's what God does for us. He pushes us to the breaking point because he knows that's where we need to be. Jesus needed to go to the cross for the joy that was set before him. Paul needed to rejoin the church that he had persecuted. Jacob needed to get back into that promised land. Joseph needed to confront his brothers. Moses needed to go back to the promised land. 
Same thing for you and me. There are, there are conversations that you must have, decisions that you must make. And God will bring you there. And he'll bring you there over and over again. And sometimes God will break you to bring you to that place. God will allow the lie to be exposed. He'll allow the job to come crashing down. He'll allow the relationship to shatter. He'll allow the bank account to be drained and empty. He'll allow the injury or the sickness because he's trying to get a hold of your soul. The Bible calls this the destruction of the flesh that your soul may be saved. And when somebody in the church is walking in sin, we are called to pray for that exact thing to happen. When that argument starts and you know what you've got to say, that it's time for you to stand up for yourself finally and stop letting yourself being pushed around. To finally be honest can happen in many ways. But this is what salvation is all about. Jesus Christ pictured it for us on the cross. That he was ripped up and torn apart and the nails driven in his hands and he bled out and died. That's what has to happen to your flesh and your sin. It's not enough just to say, you're right, I'm going to try better. God, no, God wants to break the sin in your life. And he's willing to break you out of love. I had a teacher in 11th grade who would say, God whispers, but if you don't listen to the whisper, sometimes he hits you upside the head with a two by four. And somebody said, well, I wish he would do that all the time. And he looked at her and he goes, no, you don't. Because this can happen voluntarily, you know. And that's the point of this message here. You can get over the brook Jabbok on your own. You can be like Christ and say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. You can be like Moses who said, okay, but I'm scared to death. You can make those decisions and it becomes less painful. You can face it boldly and courageously. David was a man like that. David would mess up big, but when David messed up big, he stood up and he took it like a man and repented boldly. That's who we're supposed to be. The old man's got to die and you've got to become who God needs you to be. Once you are broken, you're not coming back from this. And to be a Christian is to be constantly coming back to this place. You can't waver at the moment. You can't crumble. How many believers I've known who've been called to be missionaries, pastors, whatever it is, and then they do all the prep and all the training and all the everything, and they get right up to the brook Jabbok, and they refuse to take the final step. And their lives are miserable until they sort it out, until they either quit and God mercifully puts them somewhere else where they can be happy, or they go for it. There's a million other examples of this, and, and you need to apply this to yourself. The Lord does not have to break you, but you've got to be willing to be broken yourself, to die to yourself, to crucify your own flesh. Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave to obey Christ. I'm scared. You're going over this river because we need to be here. And then God goes to leave. Isn't this remarkable, this whole story? You've got to get this in your head. God has Popped Jacob's hip out of socket. There, you, Maybe if you've watched a little MMA, you've seen this kind of thing happen. Or you see it on TV and you go, oh. And you don't really want to watch it, but you kind of hope they'll show the replay again so that you can see it. And then the sun begins to come up and God says, I'm going now. And it says there, this is important for the story. The Lord said in verse 26, let me go for the day has broken. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Don't think of Jacob with God in a full Nelson here. And God's like, please let me go. No, he just ripped Jacob's hip out of socket. This is God walking away and Jacob like grabs at his, his robe and is holding on to it. And he's like, let go. Let me go. I've got to get out of here. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. 
Jacob is no longer high and mighty and proud and tricky. He is on the ground in desperation, begging for a blessing. This is submission. This is full on, I am tapped out. But Lord, you can't leave me like this. He finally gets it. He finally knows that he can't help himself. This is what it means to cease from striving and come to the Lord. And what's amazing is Hosea chapter 12, verse 4 says that Jacob strove with the angel and prevailed. So he prevailed. Yeah, look what the next part of it says. He wept and sought his favor. That's how you prevail with God? You don't master God? It's amazing these pagan ideas that can be brought into the culture sometimes. That we're going to go and wrestle with the gods and fight the gods and I'll become like a god. No, you don't fight with the living God. Jacob was the schemer, the planner, but this time he's got no other choice. He can't even run now. If he wanted to run away, he can't. So those cowardly thoughts are no longer even an option for him. So he has no choice but to seek God and his strength. He's finally willing to stop being Yaakov. He's in this dire situation. It just got worse. He's afraid. But he says, you've got to bless me. It's got to be you because I can't do it myself. Jacob has been able to scheme his way out of every situation he's ever been in. But not this time. This is what has to happen for you. You've got to realize that you are not enough as you are. That you are full of sin. That your problems are not just problems that happen to you, but that you are the problem in your life. This is a, a tragedy that I see often. That somebody will talk about their sin and the consequences of their sin as something that happened to them. Well, I was committing adultery and we got caught and now my family's falling apart. I don't know why God brought this into my life. Don't put that on God. Give me a break. Oh, yeah, I've, I've been doing drugs and I've been partying and my life's gone down the toilet and I lost my job and my family's wanted anything to do with me. I don't know why God's putting me through this. God's not putting you through anything. That is all you. You are the problem. That is step one of being a Christian. You've got to recognize that and let God strip that self-dependence away from you and depend on His grace and His mercy to be enough. Now Jacob's effort has switched from trying to save himself to clinging to God's robe and saying, please help me. Shortest prayer in the Bible is, Lord, help. And that's about what he's saying here. The situation has totally flipped, and that's exactly what God needed. He needed the situation to come from, God, I'm going to pray, but don't worry, I got this, to, no, I'm just going to seek God. You cannot have God's will for your life if you refuse to submit to him. There are some folks that are obsessed with finding their purpose, finding their will of God, finding their calling, but they have no interest in what God has already expressed to them that he's called them to do. No interest in righteousness. No interest in holiness. No interest in spiritual disciplines. No interest in the church. No interest in their Bible. But they're desperate to know what God wants from them. You cannot have one without the other. In fact, God will not give you the one without the other. Jacob is forced to submit. And then God asks the question in verse 29, or sorry, verse 27, what is your name? Why would God ask him that? Because what does his name mean, Yaakov, the heel catcher? 
the guy who trips up Usain Bolt at the finish line so that he gets to win the race, the guy that schemes and lies and plans, the thief, the cheat, the liar. That's what Jacob says. What is your name? Jacob. It is an admission of guilt. It is an admission of his character. And it is admission that his character is unacceptable before God. He's finally broken. He's been learning all the way. He decided he wanted to make this change. So God brought him to where he needed to be. He needed to get a little help to come to that point. But now he's finally there. My name is Jacob. I am a liar. I'm a sinner. That's the first thing we say in every sinner's prayer, right? Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. That's answering this question right there. Who are you? I'm Jacob. I'm a liar. I'm a sinner. I'm a cheat. But then God does something incredible. The mercy and grace of God is demonstrated towards Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be called Yaakov, but Yisrael. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. He renames Jacob. That name has been a plague and a prophecy over his life, and God changes it. The way you'd pronounce that in the Hebrew, you'd have a Y at the beginning of it, Yisrael. Not sure why we dropped it, but we did. It means to contend with God, or even God contends. I think we've talked about this before. The names are, are not exactly what the words would be, but they're, they're smoothed over versions to make them flow a little better. Israel. He says, because you've striven with God and men and have prevailed. And that seems odd to us. We say, wait a minute, isn't it bad to strive with God? I thought we're not supposed to strive with God. I thought God said, I will not always strive with men. That's his old moniker, right? That's his old deal. I strive with people. But no, no, this is different. This is redemption. Jacob has engaged in the struggle. And he's come out victorious because of his submission. He wrestled with God and came out a winner because he submitted to God. There are people that wrestle with God and never, ever, ever submit. And now he's able to take his place at Abraham's side, who was also renamed by the Lord. Because he, like Jacob, wrestled with God, was back and forth with God, struggled with God, learned from God, went back and forth with God. Doesn't that describe your life? You feel like you're wrestling with God sometimes? But what God has done is he says, you are going to be named the wrestler of God, with God, for God. He says, Jacob, you've got a lot of issues. You're a liar, you're a cheat, you're a thief, you're a sneak. But you know what you are, Jacob, that I like about you? You're relentless. You are never going to give up. You're never going to back down. You're going to do what needs to be done. You're going to take care of your family. You're going to not let yourself be beaten down by life. And God goes, I love that about you. And now that you finally understood that you must be submitted to me, I'm going to make you a world beater, Jacob. I'm going to take all those parts of you that were corrupted by sin, take all the sin off, put them back. And now I've got somebody that the world can never stop. Isn't that awesome? He redeemed them. He took the terrible parts of Jacob and made them the best parts of Jacob. That's redemption. The same thing with others in the Bible whose names were changed. Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church, the zealous rabbi that wanted the Christians dead, the blasphemers, how dare they? I'm going to go outside the bounds of Israel and bring them back. 
Saul's name meant king, the ruler. But then the Lord knocks him down off of his animal and says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And his life totally changed, and he became Paul, which means little. Oh, big transformation, isn't it? But you know what God did? God took that zeal that Paul had, his willingness to go wherever God sent him, his desire to study the scriptures, his aptitude for theology, and he took all of it and he aimed it back at the enemy. He swept all the sin off and said, now you're my guy and you're going to be a world beater, Paul. What about Abraham? Name started out as Avram, exalted father. Av means father, Ram means like chief or head or Lord, right? But he had no children. But God renames him Avraham, the father of many, the father of many nations, he said. God took all the parts of Abraham, his willingness to follow, his desire to be good to his family, his obedience, and the Lord shaped him into the kind of man that could raise up a generation like that, to set the example of faith. What about Simon Peter? We even call him Simon Peter. His name was Simon. He was kind of full of himself, wasn't he? Jesus said, hey, thanks for letting me use your boat as a pulpit. How about we go out for a, a ride on the lake and we'll go fishing? And Simon said, look, tourist, you don't fish during the daytime. We've already fished all night. But you know what? Yeah, you're the preacher. Fine, do whatever the preacher says. I've been fishing out here for 30 years and nobody listened to me. Fine, whatever. And they go out and he says, why don't you throw the net on the other side? And Simon goes, the fish are under the boat. It doesn't matter what side the net. Yeah, what? Fine, whatever you want. Fine. <laughs> that goes on the other side. And they bring in all this catch of fish. And Simon has his Jabbok moment where he says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I'm full of myself. I'm prideful. I want to be in charge. I want to be the boss. And he says, no, no, no. I want you. We're going to get rid of all the sin off of all of that. We're going to take your tenacity, Peter. We're going to take your loyalty, Peter. We're going to take your desire to do what's right, Peter, and I'm going to make you the rock for my church. He took all of that Simon was, all the problems of who he was, and redeemed them, and now he's on our team. You know, that's an amazing thing when you play sports. You play football or, or basketball, or especially something real contact heavy, and it's your turn in practice to get beat up by the biggest linebacker on the team. Like, oh, man, come on, and then pow, you get hit. And there's, you know, everybody on the team hates each other during practice, but then game time shows up. And now that big dude that bruises you every day, he's lined up against the other team. And you're like, oh, you guys are going down. That's our guy, baby. That's what war is. The country's always fighting and squabbling. But when we all turn our attentions at the, at the enemy, no longer are we complaining and griping about different parts. We're all together. We're on a team. That's what God does. He takes all of the worst parts of us, redeems them, and aims them back for his kingdom. It's what he did here. And he gave us all new names to mark the change. He gives us, it says, beauty for ashes. When it all burns down, God makes something beautiful out of it. To take those personality flaws that you have and redeem them and make something useful out of them. Instead of saying, I've got to change everything about me and not be like this anymore, God goes, well, hold on. I want to redeem that. I want to polish it up. I want to sharpen it. I want to hone it. I want to make it holy and glorious. James was a rough and tumble guy, brother of Jesus. Didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Probably based on my reading of the book of John, kicked Mary out of the house. <laughs> but then he has an experience with the risen Lord Jesus. And now he shows up and he's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. 
What kind of guy would God need to shepherd the church in Jerusalem? It couldn't be some nice, quiet, very gentle sort of dude. God needed a James. He needed somebody that didn't have time for nonsense. He needed somebody that stood up and was a little harsh sometimes. He took all of that, put it through the, the machine of the gospel, and out on the other side comes an apostle that he can use. Your temper will become zeal when Jesus is done with you. Your overprotection of your children will become compassion for those in the church that need it. Your lust will become a passionate love for your wife or your husband. All of that's possible in Christ Jesus. That's what the Lord does. That's what the church is, redeeming us. Revelation 2.17, the Lord says to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. You're going to have a secret name in heaven. How cool is that? No one's going to know it but you and the Lord. And I like to think that it's going to be one of those descriptive names that we see in the Bible that just totally sums up everything about you in one name, and only God and you know that. But God's already working that out on you, don't you know? He's already doing that. I see this in my, in my children even. I see this in Colton, who is so nice, but he's the most stubborn little guy. You're not getting him to do something he doesn't want. And I'm like, good. The church needs men like that. There's a woman out there who needs a husband like that. There are going to be kids that need a dad who won't back down. Look at Micah and his crazy energy and his desire to do a million things and, you know, drives you crazy sometimes. But it's like, you know what? When he grows up and matures and the Holy Spirit sharpens that, that's going to be an admirable thing about him. It's the same for you. And often we can see this in other people, but we can't see it in ourselves, which is why we need the church. Oh, I see that in you. I totally see what God's doing in you. You're not useless. You're corrupted. But the good news is that Jesus has come to redeem you from all that corruption and walk in the newness of life the Bible talks about. You know, the world is, is on to something when they say that everybody is wicked and secretly evil. But you know what? The, the, the Lord has something better. It's called mercy and grace and redemption. Where the Lord goes, but I'm going to take all that I'm going to wipe it away by my son's blood. And I'm going to bring you into a promised land, a new life that you've never experienced before. And so Jacob leaves that place. He asks the Lord, what's your name? And this is like one of those Aslan moments in the Bible, you know? He's like, what are you asking my name for? And off he goes. And I read a big, long theological explanation of why the Lord said that. I think it's, it's just one of those poetic Bible moments. Like, what are you asking my name for? It's kind of like, you know who I am. Remember when Jesus said to, to Philip, Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you don't know me? Ooh, you get goosebumps here in that, don't you? And he leaves that place, calling it Peniel, which means the face of God. It's also referred to there as Penuel. So maybe the original name was Peniel, and over time, remember this was disputed territory. It gained the name Penuel, so the author's letting us know why it was named that. Limping after his injury, your encounter with God can leave a scar, but it's not a painful one. It's a reminder so that you never forget what God has done. Haven't you been through something that in the moment was harrowing and awful, but you come out the other side and you're like, I'd do it again. Based on what I got out of that, I'll do it all over again. Paul compares the Christian life to childbirth very often. He said, in the moment, it's painful and nobody likes it. But women keep having children. Because we love what comes at the other side. 
It's the same thing with us. The sun rises. Beautiful picture here. The sun is coming up and Jacob finally crosses the Jordan River into the promised land. He's limping. He's older, but he's got a new name and now he knows God. The circle is just about complete. The Lord liberates us out of Egypt. But first you've got to pass through the wilderness. And you've got to go to Mount Sinai and meet God and confront yourself. And then take possession of the promised land. But God doesn't want you wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. He wants you to go over the river into the land he's got for you. But that journey could risk your entire life. And you need to know this. That these things are life and death, really. Because something's got to die on the cross. There is no life without death. And when we're in those moments, we are wrestling with God. And the answer is, will you submit? Jesus set the example. Jacob showed us the alternative. Are you prepared to take that leap and become who God's called you to be? To find out what the redeemed you looks like? It's a painful process. It's a scarring process. But it's absolutely necessary. I'm going to just read chapter 33 here. We're going to see how it ends. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? He's like, well, what's the deal with all those sheep, man? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. What a change in Esau. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. That's a remarkable verse. That, yes, Jacob wrestled with the Lord, but really what he was wrestling with was seeing Esau's face again. And seeing Esau's face again, in a way, was like confronting God himself. It's the same way for you. You're not maybe going to wrestle with an angel, but there might be a person's face, or a room you've got to go into, or a trip you've got to make, or a conversation you've got to have that is like confronting the face of God, and you've got to make sure you do it. But moving on, please accept my blessing that is brought to you. He's giving Esau a blessing because he stole the blessing last time. Because God has dealt gracious with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. See how they're like falling over each other to be polite and respectful, you know. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth or Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles later, or the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Shelters is the Feast of Sukkot. So if you ever hear a Jew talking about Sukkot, that's what that is. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, Shechem, 
which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which is God, the God of Israel. So he's come into the promised land, he's made a purchase, and now he has real estate in the promised land. Significant. So Israel and Esau reunite, and either Esau was appeased along the way, or there was never any danger. And it seems like it was the latter, doesn't it? That Esau was just excited and wanted to show his brother what he had accomplished. He says, hey, I'm, you're a farmer, I'm a warrior, this is my army. Pretty cool, huh? It's a tearful reunion. Israel's a new man, and it seems like Esau can sense that. We know that Esau was certainly not a godly man, but he, he certainly seems older and more mature at this point. But Jacob is wise. He doesn't want to stir up trouble. <laughs> so the two separate. Just because you have reconciled with somebody doesn't mean you've got to be best buddies. I think you all have learned that. But Jacob is now Israel. He's able to handle this situation and put it past him. And I found in most cases, when you confront the thing that's terrifying you, it's never as bad as you think. I'm not going to say always, because sometimes, yeah, it's just about that bad. But usually... You just get over it and you're like, what was I so worried for? Worrying about it was worse than the actual thing. But he's a new man now. And this is a journey we've all got to go on. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24 says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We've been using Jacob's wanderings as a metaphor for our lives, that we do something that throws our lives into upheaval. We meet God. We recognize what we've done is wrong. We make the decision to change. We come back and God brings us to the point where we finally make the change and we're back in the promised land. None of us can avoid that journey. It has to happen. Now, these can be monumental moments like Jacob, like when you got saved, when you and your wife finally made your marriage work. They can even be small little victories. You know, it's just a little trip out into the wilderness when you realize, I really shouldn't be using words like that. But you've got to voluntarily undergo this change. Because in Jesus Christ, you have a sanctified, holy self awaiting redemption that the Holy Spirit's job is to call out of you, to call forth the things that are redeemable. But listen, this is not just a message about your potential, although there's certainly nothing wrong with that. This is about your family. Your family needs you to be Israel, not Jacob. Your workplace needs you to be Paul and not Saul. Your community needs you to be Peter and not Simon. Because you are the salt and light. And the hardest part of this is the final crucible, when you've got to submit to God or die. That Gethsemane, Brook of Jabbok moment. But the good news is that God is there and he'll carry you through the darkness and through the wilderness. And his plan for you is better than anything else. And may I say also, as obsessed as we are, with these broad, top-down solutions to all the problems in, in America or wherever. We get really upset about laws and politicians and waves of culture and movement. The Lord is far more concerned with you making the changes He wants to make in your life. And you must not downplay the significance of what God can do through you if you will make this transformation, what can happen if you start living in your family like you're supposed to? If you start living in your workplace, your neighborhood, your city, your church, that is world transforming. And that is what God has given us. This bottom-up, grassroots gospel movement. 
He wants to redeem your life if you will let him. So we die to ourselves. We surrender, and then we go forth redeemed and renamed.